gold standard. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone to Functional Medicine Research. I'm Dr. Hedberg, and I'm really looking forward to my conversation today with Dr. Lucy Mailing, PhD. She is a microbiome researcher, educator, and passionate scholar of integrative, evidence-based gut health. Lucy received her bachelor's in biology from Kalamazoo College and her PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Illinois, where her graduate research focused on the impact of diet and exercise on the gut microbiota. She has authored numerous peer-reviewed journal articles regularly presents at national and international conferences and was named an emerging leader in nutritional sciences by the American Society for Nutrition in 2017. Lucy is the founder and sole author of lucymailing.com, a website dedicated to integrative evidence-based articles about the gut microbiome, health, and nutrition science. Dr. Mailing, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So you've done some great writing and research on some topics that a lot of people are interested in. And that's why I wanted to have you on. So why don't we begin by really focusing on diet and the gut microbiota and what the research is really showing at this point. So why don't we start with one of the, uh, one of the very popular diets out there, which is the ketogenic diet. And we can kind of lump in just a high fat diet in general with that. So what can you tell us about high fat diets, ketogenic diets, and how it affects the gut microbiota? Sure. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I think uh, one of the key things to keep in mind here is that we're still in the infancy of microbiome research and especially in our understanding of what constitutes a healthy microbiome. And we have certainly done a, a number of studies looking at how diet can, can impact the microbiome. A lot of this has been done in uh, animal models where we can essentially really control the diet of the animals and determine what effects that has on their microbiome. So a lot of the studies with a high fat diet in the literature are uh, kind of misleading because they're, they're labeled as a high fat diet but they're really more accurately a diet that is very high in refined fats and also high in refined sugar and low in fiber. So it's really not, we can't really take that and compare it to the equivalent of a very healthy, um, like a health conscious ketogenic diet that's got lots of non-starchy vegetables, healthy fats. Uh, There's just really not much comparison we can make there. And and the other thing is that the gut microbiome has really evolved with us, often in the context of periodic ketosis. So if we think about human evolution, we've been co-evolving with our gut microbiome for thousands of generations. And the environment we evolved in required regular adaptation to changing conditions. When there was nutrient scarcity um, or even just carbohydrate scarcity, our metabolism would shift 
to, uh, to reflect what was available uh, in our environment to, to consume. And so we have that metabolic flexibility in our, our host genome, right? Our, as humans, we have the ability to metabolize carbs or metabolize fats in, in periods of carbohydrate scarcity. So the real question is why would our bodies not have this, why would our bodies have this metabolic flexibility to deal with the shifting availability of foods and our gut microbiome not also have that same metabolic flexibility and ability to be healthy even when carbohydrates are scarce? Mm, interesting. You brought up a really great point about some of these research papers the you know the media is guilty of this and and different websites and things like that where they'll post a kind of a really catchy tagline about this diet does this and this diet does that and it's just focusing on one variable like fat but they fail to discuss all the other factors in the diet of those individuals like you said what is the quality of the carbohydrates the fat, the protein, the sugar intake, and then everything else in someone's life. You know, how much are they exercising? Do they smoke? Do they drink alcohol and things like that? Do, do you see any good science out there where they take those considerations into account? Yeah, definitely. There, there have been quite a few studies actually now on a ketogenic diet and how it impacts the human gut microbiome where they're using a, a relatively healthy ketogenic diet and generally controlling for all those other variables mm -hmm. uh, or, or at least including them in, in their analyses. And uh, so, for example, in uh, 2014, there was a study by Dr. Peter Turnbaugh's group at UCSF where they essentially put healthy human volunteers on a short-term plant-based diet or an animal-based ketogenic diet, uh, you know, just for five days, uh, but they found that there were distinct gut microbial communities that emerged within as little as three days. So there was a distinct shift with uh, the animal-based ketogenic diet and not necessarily one that was, uh, you know, any more pathogenic. Uh, there was some, some increase in uh, hydrogen sulfide producers, which we can talk about a little more later if you want. Uh, so in some cases, there might be certain gut microbial patterns that might be uh, you know, certain overgrowths that might be exacerbated on a ketogenic diet, for, but for the average person going on a ketogenic diet, I don't think we have uh, any real evidence to suggest that that's going to be bad for the gut microbiome. Mm. Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense just because it was, like you said, we evolved with various types of diets and there were certainly sometimes long periods where uh, very low fiber, not much plant, uh, food was available and people were only eating meat. And we can see certain populations around the world that, that eat diets like that. So based on your, your research and uh, what's showing now, there, correct me if I'm wrong, so there's not much evidence that a, a ketogenic diet is necessarily bad or pathogenic for someone's gut microbiota other than you mentioned if there's some level of bacterial overgrowth, is that correct? Yeah, specifically hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, because uh, there's, there's certain hydrogen sulfide producing organisms like desulfovibrio and Bilophila wadsworthia being the two most common. Those, if they're overgrown, they tend to really thrive on animal protein and fat. And so if you have an overgrowth 
um, of those particular bacteria at baseline, and then you go on a ketogenic diet, you're probably going to uh, exacerbate those overgrowths just because they thrive on those particular types of foods. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So a lot of people, you know, there's talk about diversity and the importance of that, but there's also, at least from my research, that's not necessarily all that conclusive either. And it seems from my understanding that, that the real key is, is reducing inflammation in the gut. And if you can reduce inflammation in the gut, then uh, the type of diet isn't going to have much of a, a negative effect on the microbiome. What can you say about diversity and where we are is how we look at that? And is it really important to have a lot of diversity or are we okay certain individuals for certain periods of time eating a diet that is going to decrease diversity of the gut microbiota? Yeah, great question. So diversity is definitely tricky to think about. We, it's clear that Western populations have significantly reduced diversity compared to much more traditional cultures like the Hadza hunter-gatherers, um, some Nepalese populations that have been studied that are more agrarian. They definitely tend to have higher microbial diversity and that's also associated with a lack of chronic disease. So we think that this loss of loss of diversity in our essentially industrialized microbiota is potentially contributing to our predisposition to chronic disease. Now, within a Western population, we tend to see that higher microbial diversity is more associated with health, but that's not always a perfect correlation. I think I've seen a few studies, um, for example, there was one with uh, individuals with major depressive disorder, and they found that those individuals actually had higher diversity than healthy controls, but it wasn't necessarily a healthy type of increased diversity. So diversity does tend to correlate with health, but it's, it's certainly, you know, not the only thing we should be considering when we're mm. determining, you know, whether we've got a healthy microbiome. And honestly, like I, like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're still really in the early stages of defining a healthy microbiome. But I think what you said about inflammation is really key because if we have, you know, there's many unique states of a healthy microbiome, you know, you and I only share about a third of our gut microbiota and the rest is unique to us. But if we're both healthy, we should both have you know, very low inflammation. And so that seems to be a key that is um, shared across healthy individuals is lower inflammation and a healthy uh, colonic metabolism that actually promotes a healthy microbiota that's unique to us. Mm -hmm. I'd like to take a quick moment to make you aware of some important resources that are available to you. The first is to make you aware that I not only see patients in my practice in Asheville, North Carolina, but I also have a virtual practice where I consult with patients worldwide through telehealth. So it doesn't matter where you live in the world, we could consult through our telehealth software. The second resource is the resources page on my website, where I list all of the supplements and products I use both personally and in my practice. This can be found at drhedberg.com forward slash resources. And the third resource is for healthcare practitioners who want to learn functional medicine or improve their functional medicine skills. 
I offer online functional medicine courses at the Hedberg Institute, which is my online functional medicine education platform. You can see all the courses I offer at hedberginstitute.com and sign up to watch a sample course video at no charge. That's hedberginstitute.com. And now back to the show. And I just want to ask you about protein because usually these the conversations tend to revolve around fat and carbohydrate and fiber intake. Is there anything interesting out there on protein, uh, you know, high protein, low protein, moderate protein? And is there any kind of negative or, or positive impact on individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't looked specifically at uh, high or low protein. I know there's a number of studies that have looked at low protein diets in the context of also having caloric restriction and the effect that that has on the microbiota and that it tends to increase some of the beneficial um, mucus associated microbes when we get caloric restriction and also protein restriction with that. Uh, But I, I don't think that that's you know, necessarily something we want to do in the long term. And it's actually the refeeding period where we seem tend to see a lot of those beneficial changes, um, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to separate out the effects of protein. You know, when, when you have a, a lower protein diet, you're going to have to have higher fat and higher carbohydrate, you know, one of the two to, to make up for that, keeping calories equal. Um, so... It, it's tricky to, to tease out the effects of protein. It's very clear that there are uh, protein fermenting bacteria in the gut. And uh, so much like uh, fiber fermentation can lead to the production of short chain fatty acids. Actually, there's different short chain fatty acids that can be produced from the fermentation of protein as well. So a lot of the research to date has really focused on fiber. So I haven't really seen any, any studies that kind of isolate that effect of protein, but that'd be really interesting to look mm-hmm. into. Yeah. One of the things I've seen clinically is insufficient protein intake and significant gut dysfunction, especially in athletes. And it's my understanding that the body will cannibalize amino acids from the gut lining if there's insufficient uh, protein in the diet. It'll mainly draw from the uh, gut barrier, uh, liver detox enzymes, and the skin, and then of course from muscle, and it'll break down those four areas if there's not enough protein in the diet. I just wanted to mention that as an aside, I've had a few cases really turn around as far as their gut health, just getting their protein up to sufficient levels for their, their given activity level. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I certainly think, you know, we don't, we don't know a lot about the effects of various uh, amounts of protein on the gut microbes themselves, but it's very clear that the gut barrier requires protein in order to be able to renew itself. So I think um, I, I've definitely seen that too in working with clients is that it, you need, so, you know, a baseline level of bioavailable protein to be able to heal that gut barrier. Mm-hmm. What about uh, plant-based diets and why don't we kind of just tie in low fat into that category? So there's, there's vegan, there's vegetarian. um, And it's my understanding that plant-based diets tend to uh, favor more diversity. 
are there any, what are some of the positives and, and are there any potential negatives to uh, a completely plant-based diet on the gut microbiota? Yeah, so we definitely see that uh, vegans and vegetarians often tend to eat a lot of, a lot more fiber. If, you know, if, if they're eating a healthy vegetarian or vegan diet, they do tend to be getting a lot of plant diversity. And we definitely think of that as something that is generally beneficial for uh, the gut microbiota. I would say in terms of uh, specific types of profiles we see in the gut microbiota that might respond really well to a more plant-based lower fat diet, that's actually those uh, people who have the hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, where they have that overgrowth of desulfovibrio, bilophila, wadsworthia, we often see them really improve by shifting more towards a heavy uh, plant-based diet for a short period of time. Um, now I do with that have concerns largely around bioavailable protein and getting the nutrients that you need for um, for healing the gut. A lot of the um, B vitamins are really bioavailable in animal foods. So even, even in individuals with hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, I'm not recommending that as a permanent shift. You know, the idea is to hopefully be able to address that overgrowth. The plant-based diet may provide some relief in the short term, um, but typically I'm, I'm hoping to get people back to at least some consumption of animal foods just because I think we, we can optimize nutrient status best as, as omnivores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a, a hot topic right now, plant-based versus uh, including some animal proteins. So you mentioned um, hydrogen sulfide a few times so far. So it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but currently there, there aren't any great tests for that. We're pretty good at doing SIBO breath tests and things like that, but but no great testing yet available for hydrogen sulfide. So we kind of have to go by symptoms. Is there anything new in that on the horizon with hydrogen sulfide as far as diagnosis or, or are we still just looking at symptoms? Yeah, it's primarily looking at symptoms, but we can often see an overgrowth of those two microbes that I mentioned or a few others on a comprehensive stool profile. So that's one other way to look at it. And if there's hydrogen sulfide overgrowth in the small intestine, that may not show up on a stool test. But typically what I've seen is when people have those classic hydrogen sulfide symptoms, they're also going to show hydrogen sulfide overgrowth on, uh, on a stool test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that on the DNA, uh, the PCR stool testing. Mm -hmm. So... Let's talk. Let's stay on the on the theme of diet. Uh, you wrote a great great article on gluten and gut dysbiosis. So this this is probably, I'll guess, can be a little bit difficult to differentiate. Is it is it the inflammation that the gluten is causing in the gut that's causing the problem? Is it the the wheat or the rye or the barley or the other foods that have it? Uh, that are causing the issues. What can you tell us about how gluten is affecting gut dysbiosis? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of things in wheat that could potentially trigger symptoms for people who have what we call non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity. And 
because of this, you know, because there seem to be many different triggers in wheat, it's led to a lot of doubt among the scientific and medical community that gluten is the true cause of symptoms in these individuals. So for example, wheat is very high in FODMAPs. Um, so these carbohydrates are, are rapidly fermentable in the gut. And for many individuals, they can cause bloat and gas and other unpleasant GI symptoms. So, uh, so some studies have found that FODMAPs seem to, seem to be more of an issue in wheat. Um, there's also amylase trypsin inhibitors. Uh, which are proteins in plants that kind of support the natural defense of the plant against predators and pests. And uh, they can really activate the immune system and cause inflammation. So that's another potential um, trigger in, in wheat. And there's also uh, wheat germagglutinin, which is a lectin. So people with, uh, who are particularly sensitive to lectins can often get uh, get triggered by that. And then there have been studies that have shown that gluten itself is a trigger in some people. So, and then there's other wheat proteins as well. It's not just gluten. There's, you know, um, gliadins, deamidated gliadins, glutenins, gluteomorphin. So there's a number of things in wheat that really make it tricky to, you know, determine for the scientific community to say this is a real thing. But it's very clear that even though there might be you know, different subsets of people who are reacting to different parts of the wheat. Um, there, there definitely is, you know, an issue there that's, that's causing inflammation. So there, there are a subset of people with IBS who are, are uh, responding very, neg very negatively to something in wheat and would uh, do well to cut it out for a time. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that needs to be forever, I'm, I'm not dogmatic about that. Um, I, I think there are, it's clear that there are a lot of people that when they address gut health and really improve, improve uh, their, their symptoms, they're able to reintroduce gluten in moderation um, or, or wheat in moderation. So um, I think there is a strong evidence for a connection between gut dysbiosis and an inability to tolerate wheat. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I remember reading a study, I think it was about 10 years ago, maybe longer on, uh, it was a study done in Italy on sourdough and people with celiac disease. And they, it was a particular f type of sourdough with some different uh, grains in it. But the people with celiac disease, all, everyone in the study had no negative effects from this particular bread that was. Uh, prepared the way it was. And so I wonder if, if, I mean, that's another thing that I think would be interesting to look at is how the grains are prepared. And I've just had a lot of patients talk to a lot of people over the years who they can do a small amount of sourdough mm -hmm. and be fine. Uh, but if they go outside that realm, if it's not sourdough, then, then they get triggered. And I wonder if that, that could also be connected to the FODMAP properties if those are altered by the sourdough process. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that's a good question as to whether uh, whether the FODMAPs are significantly altered. I know that, you know, uh, sourdough has, uh, the fermentation process reduces the level of anti-nutrients like the lectins, the phytates, and many of the most immunogenic proteins. So, uh, 
basically the culture that they ferment it with starts breaking down some of these things that are typically uh, cause a reaction in the gut. I don't know about the FODMAPs though. That's really, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if anyone has looked at that, but there's definitely evidence that some of our, our small intestinal microbiome actually can also influence the breakdown of those anti-nutrients like the lectins and phytates and, and some of those immunogenic proteins. And so if we have an altered small intestinal microbiome, then we're not breaking those down into smaller components that, you know, aren't going to trigger inflammation by the immune system. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I wanted to mention one other type of diet that I didn't mention earlier, which was the autoimmune paleo diet. A lot of my listeners uh, are very familiar with that and practitioners as well. Uh, so obviously the AIP diet is going to be anti-inflammatory. It's just going to be inherently low FODMAP for the most part, depending on the types of vegetables that the individual is consuming on that diet. Any Anything interesting about the autoimmune paleo diet and the gut microbiota? Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite questions. Actually, it was actually the autoimmune protocol that helped me to completely clear my eczema. Uh, and so I, I have a lot of personal experience in it. And I wondered the same thing when I started studying the microbiome was, you know, did this AIP diet help me because it was improving my gut health? And uh, there have been quite a few studies with the autoimmune protocol now. Um, one showing that AIP was extremely effective for inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I think that was published back in 2017. Uh, and then most recently, I actually teamed up with some of the same researchers that were involved in that study, uh, Angie Alt and Rob Abbott, and we did an AIP study for eczema and psoriasis. And we did that, we ran the participants through the intervention last fall, and we also collected fecal samples, and we did a gut barrier permeability test. So we are currently analyzing all the data from that, and we'll hopefully have that to share really soon. So we'll finally know how AIP impacts the gut microbiome. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Dr. Abbott's study on, uh, I think it was AIP and autoimmune thyroid disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, that'll be great. Very interesting. Do you have any idea when that might be coming out? We were a little backed up in the lab because of COVID. So, uh, mm -hmm. I'm hoping this fall we'll be able to, to have a manuscript out published. Oh, excellent. So another dietary component that has been talked about a lot recently is resistant starch and how that affects the gut microbiota. Can you tell us, a lot of people don't know what that is. Can you tell us what that is, what, what foods it, it may be found in and how it could help the microbiota? Sure. So resistant starch is essentially a type of starch that passes through the GI tract unchanged. So it's resistant to digestion by us, the host. And uh, so it basically passes through the small intestine unencumbered by our small intestinal digestive enzymes, and it reaches the colon where it can then be fermented by specific bacteria into short chain fatty acids like butyrate and uh, other metabolites as well. So it's a type of prebiotic fiber, 
and it also has the potential to selectively promote the growth of certain bacteria in the colon. And there are four primary types of resistant starch. The first is uh, type 1 or RS1 is found in whole or partially intact grains, seeds, and legumes. Uh, RS2 is found in raw potatoes, uh, green, like unripe bananas, raw plantains. Um, that's also the most common supplemental form of resistant starch. It's commonly available as, as potato starch or green banana flour. And then RS3 is formed when starchy foods like potatoes or rice are cooked and then cooled. So that turns some of the previously digestible starches into resistant starch. And then type 4 is synthetic man-made resistant starch. Um, it's produced by chemical modification. That's like high maize resistant starch that would be added to, it's commonly added to processed foods, but has also been studied um, as, as like an isolated supplement. So those four things kind of complicate things when you're looking at the research. So a lot of people tend to lump all of those into one to, you know, to see, you know, does resistant starch have, have benefits on our health? But I think it's really important that we um, look at them separately because they are very different in their structure and their effects. So, um, for example, uh, resistant starch in general tends to, um, tends to be beneficial for gut health in terms of um, increased butyrate production, um, increased abundance of, of butyrate producing bacteria, but it's very individual in terms of the responses. And it's also dependent on, on which type of resistant starch. So um, I've, I've now reviewed a number of studies that suggest that we should really be cautious with RS2, and that's actually the most common supplemental form. So that's the raw potato starch. And that's because it's, it's been shown in several studies to potentially cause gut inflammation. And uh, so, and, and potentially also then increase the uh, prevalence of opportunistic pathogens in the gut. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing more studies. A lot of the studies to date with resistant starch have actually looked at uh, metabolic health markers. So they've, you know, they've said resistant starch is beneficial because it's, um, you know, it's improving glucose sensitivity, um, reducing cholesterol, causing satiety. Uh, but I, I think we need more studies that are looking at gut inflammation and uh, gut barrier function because I think there's, it's potentially causing some stress there. The uh, other type is uh, that's commonly consumed is resistant starch 3 or RS3. Um, and that's a much more like evolutionary, evolutionarily familiar type of resistant starch. So it's produced from the, the cooking and cooling of foods. So when we go back to kind of thinking about the fact that our microbes have co-evolved with us, you know, we've, we've been cooking tubers and, you know, and eating cooked and cooled tubers for a very long time. So um, I think that type of resistant starch can be quite helpful and is, is likely improving the health of the gut microbiota. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Resistant starch is something that I've, and, and you, you may have a different opinion on this, but it's something I, I don't, I, I wouldn't use in the beginning. It's always been something that I would use, you know, it, the soonest would be maybe a few months in two or three months of a, of a gut healing program. Uh, I've just found that doing things like that, any kind of prebiotic 
or something like resistant starch uh, is just, it's not a good idea in the beginning. Have you found that as well or, or have you used it right away in patients and gotten good results? Oh, absolutely. I, w I wait uh, to introduce any prebiotics, but particularly resistant starch. And I would never introduce it as a supplement. So if, if the person can tolerate whole foods sources of resistant starch, then they can slowly start to incorporate those. But typically with, with someone who's got some significant gut healing to do, they can't tolerate any types of fiber. So if they can't, if they can't tolerate whole food sources of fiber, I'm not going to be, you know, suggesting that they, they down some raw potato starch just to, um, you know, just to try to get fiber in there because it's, it's more likely to cause inflammation when, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when you're not tolerating fiber and inflammation is just going to lead to uh, uh, a more dysbiotic gut in general. You mentioned butyrate, so that's a, a short-chain fatty acid that's produced when the gut microbes uh, break down the food that we eat. Can you talk a little bit more about butyrate and why, that, why that's beneficial to have more butyrate in the gut? Sure. Uh, uh, so butyrate is the preferred source of energy for the cells in our colon that line the gut and form that gut barrier. So over 60 to 70% of the energy requirements for those gut epithelial cells is coming from butyrate. And uh, so it, it's increasing their turnover, it's increasing the repair and essentially the tightness of the barrier. It's also very immunoregulatory, so it's reducing inflammation in the gut um, and, and kind of regulating the immune system. It also stimulates the secretion of mucus from the gut, which is really important for essentially maintaining a little bit of a gap between the epithelial cells and the microbes. Because if the microbes start adhering directly to the epithelial cells, we're going to get major inflammation. So that mucus layer is really important and butyrate stimulates um, the uh, secretion of that mucus. Mm. And just uh, for the, so the listeners know, are there any strategies, anything they would want to include in their diets, type of eating that would improve their butyrate levels? And is, is there ever a time where you don't want to increase butyrate? Yeah, so there's a number of strategies to increase butyrate. The, the primary way is to consume fiber since the fermentation of fiber by our gut bacteria is what produces large amounts of butyrate in the gut. So that is, that is the primary way to achieve butyrate levels. And through consuming fiber, there's, there's really not any way you're going to get too much butyrate. We actually probably have lower butyrate levels than our, our ancestors did since they were consuming much, much higher amounts of fiber and had more diverse uh, gut bacteria. So you're not going to achieve too high levels of butyrate through diet alone. Um, now you can also supplement with butyrate and that you could definitely overdo. So there's a lot of like calcium and magnesium butyrate salts out there on the market and you can, they're essentially, you look at the label and they're suggesting pretty 
like mega doses. And part of that reason is because they're providing like five gram doses in the hopes that some of it is going to make its way all the way down to the colon. Right. So, um, but it's also providing basically a super physiological dose of butyrate. And when the gut is inflamed, uh, too much butyrate could actually, there's some evidence to suggest that too much butyrate might actually impair the uh, ability of stem cells in the gut to kind of repair the gut barrier. So if you have significant mucosal inflammation going on, low amounts of butyrate could be helpful, but kind of mega doses of butyrate like you would get from supplements could potentially be be harmful. So I, I typically, if I do uh, recommend supplementing with butyrate, it's typically uh, brands that are specifically targeted more to the colon, have a slower release and are a lower dose. So there's two that I'm aware of. Um, Probutyrate from Tesseract Med uh, is kind of like a fiber matrix encoded butyrate. And then the second is uh, Beauty Caps, which is uh, a tributyrin form. So it's, uh, it's like bound up in a triglyceride form that essentially helps it traffic more to the colon before it's broken down and, and released. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if the, the interesting thing is that uh, there's also increasing research that beta hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone body, could actually fulfill some of the same roles of butyrate in the gut. So if you can't get butyrate production from fiber, uh, it's possible that you could get it from ketones, um, from essentially going, going the other way from, from the bloodstream, the gut will pick up ketones and that will feed into the same metabolic pathway as butyrate and help support the gut barrier. Mm -hmm. So would you say that butyrate supplements could be used in an individual who, uh, cannot tolerate fiber and uh, they have gut barrier dysfunction. Would that be correct or is that not, not correct? Yeah, that is, that is correct. I would just choose those that are a little more targeted to the colon and are, are lower dose, but definitely that could be beneficial. And I've, I've seen a lot of people get major improvements from that. And, you know, also when you start to tighten up the gut barrier, you start to provide butyrate to, be able to bring down inflammation, often you can then start to tolerate more fiber as well. So mm-hmm. it's not, it's definitely not a long-term solution because the amount of butyrate you're going to be able to provide via supplements is never going to equate to the amount that you could get in a healthy gut from fiber. So the goal is always to address the overgrowth and, um, or the, the dysbiosis and be able to get back to a place where you can tolerate fiber and produce your butyrate that way. But in the short term, when we want to kind of help out the, the gut barrier that's starving for energy and, and is really inflamed, providing some supplemental butyrate can definitely be helpful. And that has been demonstrated in um, several clinical trials, even in cases like ulcerative colitis, where there's you know, significant inflammation and gut permeability going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about fiber and what some of your favorites are. So there's soluble and and insoluble and i'll usually start with a soluble because it's not as irritating to the gut lining uh so there's you know there's flax fiber there's acacia fiber and then you can move on to things that are uh highly insoluble like 
psyllium and things like that. So do you have a, what's your approach with, with fiber and, and what are you using? Yeah, I have seen that as well, that soluble fiber can often be tolerated a little bit sooner than insoluble fiber. I don't really necessarily make that distinction, and I, I don't really have a set protocol for implementing fiber, um, mm-hmm. largely because uh, a lot of the clients I work with are, are on the extreme of difficulty with their gut health, and so they're, they can only tolerate a few foods, and when they're, expanding, they're starting to expand their diet to include more foods, it's often still very limited. So I often let that direct which fibers they um, are able to to incorporate, and it really does seem to be different for everyone. So while while one person might tolerate psyllium really well, another person might might really not respond to that. So and the truth is we don't have the diagnostics. You know, even if even if we do a full gut profile, we we can't yet predict how you're going to respond to a prebiotic fiber. And it's often counterintuitive the way the way people respond sometimes. So I don't really have a set protocol for that. It's it's more really encouraging people to uh, you know to listen to their body and and see how their symptoms respond to trying to incorporate various different types of fiber. Right, right. Yeah, I don't use much fiber in practice. Usually, it's um, you know once you get the diet right and you get. Uh, things back in balance as far as dysbiosis and hydrochloric acid and, and pancreatic sufficiency and things like that. You tend, I've, at least I see, I tend not to need to use a fiber supplement and I can get the, the patient eating enough in their diet. In any case. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you wrote an interesting article on vitamins and minerals for gut health. Can you walk us through some of the most important vitamins and minerals people should know about for for healthy gut function? Sure. So, uh, so I should maybe we can start with zinc um, since we've been talking about the gut barrier. So, zinc is really important for um, activating a protein called collagenase which essentially allows our cells to remodel collagen during wound healing. And so it's been shown to reduce gut barrier permeability. Um, So that is definitely um, very important. Um, Vitamin D is also really huge to gut health. We see lots of epidemiological studies showing a strong association between vitamin D deficiency and uh, increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease. So vitamin D has been shown to be important in maintaining gut barrier function and also in maintaining a healthy balance of, of bacteria as well. So we see there's been um, a few studies looking at vitamin D deficiency and how that impacts uh, the gut. And it does tend to increase um, increase bacteria that we think of as, as associated with dysbiosis. Um, so that's that's uh, particularly important and hopefully easier for a lot of people now in the middle of, of summer to be getting enough of that. Um, and then I'll also say uh, vitamin C, I, I see as one that a lot of people are deficient in um, that is really crucial. Again, r- related to the synthesis of collagen, um, 
vitamin C is isn't really involved in wound healing. So, um, mm. so vitamin C would be another that is really important. Now, the the truth is we have very few studies that have looked at this uh, the supplementation of isolated micronutrients and how that impacts the gut microbiota and gut barrier function. Um, particularly how it affects the gut microbiota. So there, there are some nutrients that have been shown to be really detrimental in supplementation, iron being one of them. So iron is uh, particularly tends to be important for opportunistic pathogens in the gut. And for example, when they've done studies in malnourished children trying to supplement iron to improve their iron status, they've found that it causes massive dysbiosis in the gut. So we, we do want to be careful with providing um, supplemental nutrients in significant amounts, you know, especially if they're not needed. So definitely would be worth, you know, getting some nutrient testing to see if these are worthwhile before blindly, you know, just, just throwing vitamins and minerals in your gut. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Yeah. With iron, if the ferritin is extremely low, the patient isn't usually going to be feeling, feeling very well, but you also don't want to create more issues in the gut by supplementing with iron too soon. And, uh, the ferritin is usually low because of gut dysfunction in the first place. So there's a lot to look mm -hmm. at there, uh, from that perspective. So interesting. So yeah, a lot of those nutrients like zinc, vitamin D, C, these are just kind of some of the classics that you would recommend to someone trying to prevent a cold or a flu and uh, strengthening the immune system. And that makes sense because most of the immune system is in the gut. So interesting. Now you wrote a really great paper on exercise. And so the title of the paper is Exercise and the Gut Microbiome, a Review of the Evidence, Potential Mechanisms, and implications for human health. And this was published in Exercise and Sport Sciences Reviews. So can you kind of summarize for us what you found, how exercise impacts the gut microbiota? Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, this has been a really exciting area of research in the last uh, 10 years. And one that I got involved in uh, when I started my PhD research at University of Illinois in uh, Dr. Jeff Wood's lab. And when I joined the lab, they had essentially just uh, recently done some studies. They were using a colitis model and trying to see if exercise could be beneficial for ameliorating colitis. And what was really interesting is they found that uh, voluntary wheel running, so when they allowed mice to run on a wheel as much as they wanted during the day, that was protective against colitis. But when they forced the mice to run on a treadmill, it exacerbated colitis and increased mortality. So that was a really interesting finding. And, you know, they were trying to figure out, well, what, what is the mechanism for this? What is going on that's causing these disparate outcomes in, in uh, colitis? And so uh, then there was a, a new student that joined the lab, Jacob Allen. Um, and uh, he proposed that, you know, maybe the gut microbiome is involved. And he started looking into that. And he found, lo and behold, the two different types of exercise cause very distinct shifts in the gut microbiome. And so that's how our lab kind of transitioned from an immunology lab 
um, primarily into uh, a real focus on how exercise impacts the gut microbiome. And we certainly weren't the first to show that exercise impacted the gut. There had been um, other animal studies that had shown that uh, exercise was able to alter the structure and function of the gut micro microbiome. Um, we'd also seen there were a number of cross-sectional studies that had been published where they essentially took a group of athletes and a group of sedentary people and just profiled their gut microbiota and kind of looked at what differences there were. And there did seem to be, um, you know, increased diversity in the athlete's microbiome, um, increased short-chain fatty acid production and turnover of carbohydrates in the athletes. But athletes also tend to eat very differently than non-athletes. And so, uh, when we, when the researchers uh, controlled for the effects of diet, a lot of those associations fell away. So the, it was still unknown as to whether exercise training could actually independently of diet impact the human microbiome. And so um, when I joined the lab, uh, I partnered up with Jacob Allen and we ran the first um, longitudinal study of exercise training on the human gut microbiome. So we had 32 individuals, so we had a lean and, and obese group, um, but they were otherwise healthy, no, no active uh, GI conditions or anything like that. And we found that um, six weeks of exercise training in these previously sedentary people uh, had significant changes uh, in the gut microbiome. And then when they reverted and went back to their sedentary lifestyle for another six weeks, a lot of those changes in the microbiome disappeared. So we definitely thought, you know, this is really showing there's a, a real effect of exercise here. And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the changes did seem to be beneficial. We saw um, an increase in uh, butyrate producing bacteria, particularly in the lean individuals. And so that has, you know, a lot of wide, wide ranging implications, not only for gut health, but we also know that butyrate can get, uh, small amounts of butyrate can get into circulation and have effects on, on the brain, on muscle, on insulin sensitivity. Um, so this was basically suggesting that some of the effects of exercise, you know, might be mediated through beneficial changes in the gut bacteria. Mm. Interesting. So why don't we close with a question on probiotics and, and antibiotics. There were a few papers recently published that shed some doubt on using probiotics after someone has taken antibiotics. And it was my understanding that these kind of hinted that perhaps they can delay the restoration of the gut microbiota back to the state it was uh, before the antibiotics, so they could be detrimental. But there's also, I think, a lot of holes in some of these studies. So what's your opinion on what's come out on, on that question and the studies on probiotics after antibiotics? Yeah, so I'd, I should start by saying I'd, I'd love to see a lot more research in this area because I think it's, it's definitely needed. But there was this one very comprehensive study that was published in late 2018 by Aaron Siegel and Aaron Elinov um, at the Wiseman Institute of Science. And uh, they essentially had three groups of people who they gave antibiotics. And then 
the first group was allowed to just recover over time with no intervention. The second group was given a uh, probiotic. And then the third group was given an autologous fecal transplant. So this, was, this meant they, were, they stored some of their stool before antibiotics, and then they re-inoculated them after uh, the antibiotics. And they found that the spontaneous recovery group took about three weeks before their gut microbiome looked close to normal. Um, obviously, we know that antibiotics can have some long-term effects. So, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily completely as it was before, but after 21 days, it was, it was close to normal. The probiotic group took between three to five months to, uh, to restore their gut microbiota, indicating that the probiotics were actually delaying the return of the native ecosystem. And then the autologous fecal transplant group had a near complete restoration in less than a single day, which was really quite amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but focusing back in on the, the probiotic group, I think, I think it's very easy to think of the gut as a, a simplified system and to say, well, we're clearing out the gut with antibiotics, so why not throw some of these beneficial microbes in? and you know, think, think we're repairing it. But the truth is that most probiotics are made of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains. And those actually only make up about you know, a maximum of three, maybe 5% of a healthy gut, um, but typically, typically much lower than that. So we're essentially putting in massive amounts of these probiotics and allowing them to colonize the ecosystem and, uh, you know, there's many native microbes that we can't give as probiotics, like the butyrate producers, who might be outcompeted by those probiotics when we put them in there in high doses. And so it's essentially, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're preventing some chance of infection. You know, there's, there's some evidence to suggest that probiotics during or after antibiotics might uh, reduce the risk of C. diff infection but it's coming at a cost because we're delaying the return of the native ecosystem and essentially almost creating like a monoculture of, um, of these probiotic strains um, that, that seem to be taking over and, and kind of delaying the return of those butyrate producers. So I've really uh, spoken up about this because I think there's just, you know, it's no hesitation. Even many conventional doctors now are prescribing probiotics every time you get antibiotics. And we just don't know enough to know whether that's actually beneficial. Maybe we're actually increasing someone's risk of infection for five months instead of, you know, an acute period. So it really depends on a lot of factors. And there might be some cases where that might be beneficial if you have someone who's, you know, really immune, like, uh, potentially immunocompromised or in a hospitalized situation where they're very likely to contract C. diff, then the benefits of, of taking some probiotics after antibiotics might outweigh the cost of returning the, um, delaying the return of the ecosystem. But um, yeah, and th there's actually uh, some really interesting research around butyrate and its potential to be a much better option for um, supplementing with butyrate during antibiotics may actually support the gut barrier and support the return of uh, beneficial bacteria, inhibiting the, the um, expansion of pathogens that often occurs after uh, antibiotics. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And with, and again, so the butyrate supplementation, you had mentioned a dose of five grams. Was that correct? Well, that was, um, so five grams is typically the mega dose is given of mm-hmm. like calcium or magnesium butyrate salts. So that's, I think that's, that's probably much too high, even for someone who's on antibiotics where their butyrate producers are being wiped out. Um, I would typically, uh, most of the uh, targeted butyrate supplements are providing more of like 300 milligrams dose of butyrate per capsule. Mm-hmm. And you could, when you went on antibiotics, I think you could take, you know, a, a larger amount of those capsules. I'd really like to see some clinical trials because I don't, I don't like making that recommendation without really knowing what dose we should be providing during antibiotics. And I, I hope mm-hmm. we get some, some research to shed some light on that soon. And so assuming that those papers were, were accurate regarding antibiotics and, and probiotics, do you have a sense of, of how long one should wait to take probiotics after antibiotics, or is that just real unknown at this point? That's a very good question. And one that we don't necessarily know based on evidence where they've waited and then introduced probiotics, but we do know that that spontaneous recovery group, often around three weeks post antibiotics, your your gut bacteria, your gut microbiome is looking more like it did before antibiotics. So the bacterial load is returned, and you know your butyrate producers have had a chance to recover. So uh, when I've been asked this in the past, I've typically said, you know, probably around that three-week mark is when it'd be, you know, introducing probiotics isn't going to necessarily take over that, that open niche because the, the bacteria and, and other microbes have largely returned. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, this has been really fantastic. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's been a real treat having someone with a PhD that's focused on the microbiome. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Mailing, how would you like people to find you? What is your website and what's the best way to, to reach you? Yeah, uh, lucymailing.com is my website. I've got lots of uh, free content there about pretty much all the topics we covered today. Uh, you can also find me on social media at Lucy Mailing PhD, although I'm not nearly as active as I uh, am on my blog. So uh, my website is definitely the best place to get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, L-U-C-Y-M-A-I-L-I-N-G.com, correct? Yep. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, go to drhedberg.com and I'll have links to Dr. Mailing's website where you can read her articles. And Dr. Mailing, you also do uh, telehealth consultations. Is that correct? Yep, I do. Okay, excellent. So you can contact her that way if you're interested in that as well. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Take care. This is Dr. Hedberg. And I will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. 
That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode. 